Hello and welcome to another episode of Charles Weekly Partee. I'm Charles and before I get started, let's roll the intro. All right, so today is going to be a little bit different of an episode. First and foremost, I'm in a new recording space and I know there's a little bit of echo. I'm still um, working out a couple of kinks to try and minimize that as much as possible, but um, it is significantly better than the space I was in last week. However, um, today's episode is going to be a little bit um, different and I think a little bit more um, reflective. So this episode will be released on September 13th. However, I think it's important to note out that this is the this is the closest release date to the 20th anniversary of the 9/11 attacks. So because of that, I wanted to look at a specific um pe- sort of piece of architecture and I'm I'm using the term architecture here in a way because um, I'm not I'm not going off of the dictionary definition, but it's it's taking ideas into account and actually doing something with them meaningfully. So, as such, I'm going to be uh, I won't tell you quite yet what I'm talking about for the. Um, episode today. However, what I will note out is that because this does pertain to 9-11, I wanted to do a dedicated episode to this. And what I'm doing is I'm releasing a standard episode with all of the, with both the architecture I'm looking at this week and a couple of the tech updates that really caught my eye this week. And I picked only the two that were most important to me. And the other thing is that the portions of this episode pertaining to 9-11 will be released as a bonus episode um, only as a podcast. So for those of you who watch on YouTube, I apologize, but this will be a Um, podcast exclusive piece. Now, what I'm going to be looking at today are specifically the reflecting pools at ground zero. And unlike many of the pieces of architecture that um, you've looked at over the past uh, 25 episodes, this is the 26th, this is one of the few that I've actually been to and I feel is something is one of the pieces of architecture that you should actually make it a goal to see because no matter what I say about it, there's an experience that you get actually going to the reflecting pools. And that experience can only be um, 
experienced, for lack of better words, if you visit in person. You can look at pictures all you want, but nothing quite replaces the feeling that you get when you're actually right there. So, in the aftermath of 9-11, um, when things got to the memorial planning stage, they had a design uh, competition to try and figure out or get multiple different um, views on what type of, or how they could properly memorialize the uh, events that happened that day and the lives that were lost. And this is relatively common with memorials as several people have several different ideas and while someone may only be able to, or while each person might only really be able to come up with one idea, a design competition allows you to get multiple ideas and pick the best of them that you like. The selected entry was titled Reflecting Absence, and it was designed by Michael Arad and landscape architect Peter Walker. So, what this did was taking into account all of the different things and bringing in architectural meaning. So um, one of the pieces was to place around re reflecting pools in which you could really get, you could sit basically in the middle of the city and be able to reflect which if you've ever been to a bustling city is difficult to do um, be just because of the amount of noise that you have from the surrounding cityscape. So with these uh, reflecting pools, um, which also have, which were also designed to feature the 2,977 uh, lives that were lost in the attacks on uh, September 11th, as well as the six people who died in the February 26th, 1993 bombing at the World Trade Center. And all of their names are placed around the pools. And before I get a little bit more in depth on the names, I'm going to go over the other important features of the pool that really make it a meaningful spot to reflect. So if you uh, go there, you'll be able to see that looking down into the reflecting pools, you see the base is all um, coated in a dark material so that it maximizes the amount of reflection that you're able to get. And realistically, the, er, and the reflecting pools are specifically designed to take into account something else. So if you sit and watch the reflecting pools, 
you'll notice that the water continually pours down from the sides and eventually makes its way into a center sort of void. But no matter what, that void never really gets filled. And what that represents is the fact that in many people's hearts, many people lost friends and family on that day. And there are plenty of examples that um, get cited at various different, or already ex exist in various different um, media forms, such as voice, their voicemail recordings that people left when they knew that they were not going to be getting out of, getting out of that situation alive. And many, many other heartbreaking things to look at and see. And for all of the people who lost someone, there's a void in their heart. And that void can't be filled. No matter how much love and support that they get, the void created by that loss just cannot be filled in or replaced. And that is the biggest symbol within the memorial here. To reflect with simple flowing water how many people still feel. The other important thing that the flowing water does is it blocks out the sounds of the city around it. Having stood at the edge, and once again, I strongly encourage everyone listening to the or to this to go and visit the reflecting pools because no matter how much I talk about it, I can tell you my personal experience there, but it can't give you the, that same feeling. And just standing at the edge of the reflecting pools, all that you end up, all, all you can really do is stand there and reflect. You can think, you can look at the names, And you can do so without hearing all of the extra city surroundings. And even if you can hear them faintly, my, your, your mind just ends up blocking it out. That, that's how it ended up happening when I was there. And it was designed that way. And other people who I've talked to who have also gotten a chance to visit this um, incredible memorial have also mentioned similar experiences. As with all things in architecture, 
Things are not just done meaninglessly. And the arrangement of the names is one of those. So, to put it simply, there is an overarching arrangement of the names, but within those overarching arrangements, friends or colleagues or family may be grouped together. So, for instance, the flight crews on each of the planes that was used in the attacks are grouped together. Also, um, the overarching arrangement is that for the North Pool, there are the names of those who perished um, who were in the North Tower, as well as those who were on Flight 11 and those who died in the February 26th, 1993 bombing. The names around the South Pool are those who died in the South Tower of the World Trade Center, as well as all the first responders who died on the uh, or at Ground Zero. Or, I should say, all of the first responders who um, died in the attacks trying to save people. It also holds the names of those who are on Flight 93, Flight 77, and Flight 175. And finally, the names of those who died in the attack on the Pentagon. And something to note out about all of the names is that um, with the with the funding that they or that the 9/11 museum has, they're able to on every single one of those for each person's birthday whose name is on that or name is around the pool, they place a rose on their birthday on their name. With respect to the sites surrounding the reflecting pools, there are a whole bunch of swamp white oak trees that dot the site around it. And what's special about these trees is that they are native to New York City, Somerset, Pennsylvania, and Arlington, Virginia. So featuring those trees also helps unite the three separate locations um, where people were perished in the attacks. And there is one calorie pear tree, which I didn't know before doing some research. And what's special about that tree is that it actually managed to survive the attacks and was nursed back to health afterwards and replanted on the site. And this tree is known as the survivor tree because it managed to somehow defeat the odds and survive the attacks. So my concluding thoughts on the reflecting pools are just that you can't really get the 
full experience unless you're actually there. So if you haven't gotten a chance to go there, I really, I can't stress enough that I that you should plan to get there at some point in time. If you're ever in New York City or ever happen to be anywhere within maybe within reasonable distance of the city, make a stop at those reflecting pools and I guarantee you it will be worth your time. Also, I want you to think, take, take a few moments um, and think about the impacts that those attacks had on America. And in all of the chaos that unfolded that day, there was plenty of unity. And I know many people have um, brought this up of recent, but I think it's important to note out that when things are really in a tough spot, we're able to put aside our differences. And the other piece is that when, or for some of the people involved, or for the people who were killed in these attacks, there were, I mentioned earlier about voicemails that were left. And in several of these, several of these final voicemails, the last, or the common message was just, I love you. Didn't matter what arguments or difference or problems that happened, all of the thing there are plenty of arguments that people have. But in the end, there's not a heck of a lot that matters when it all comes down to it. So just just some thoughts. Now there's no easy way to do this, but um, I'm going to transition now to talking about the uh, technology items on the docket. So first I want to talk about Australia's surveillance laws. And there's a bill that's been introduced that would create three new powers for law enforcement agencies. First being data disruption warrants, which allow authorities to disrupt data by copying, deleting, or modifying data as they see fit. Network activity warrants, which permit the collection of um, intelligence from devices or networks that are used or likely to be used by subject uh, or by whoever is the subject of the warrant. And there are account takeover warrants, which permit agencies to take control of an online account, such as a social media account, 
or email account in order to uh, collect information pertinent to an investigation. And um, I will note out that some of those words are taken directly from a reporting source. I uh, can't remember exactly what the source is off the top of my head, but there is no easy way to um, re rephrase and reword um, what you can do with the data disruption warrant, which is really just um, copying, deleting, or modifying data as someone uh, finds it appropriate to do. So the big problem that I have here, besides just um, data monitoring, which I'm never a big fan of, but the modifying data as you see fit or gaining control of an online account or being forced or having companies who have online accounts to have a forced backdoor for government hackers, I think that's a problem and for more than one reason. First and foremost, backdoors aren't necessarily just for the government. If there's an, op put it this way, if there's a way in, someone else who wants a way in can find one. So now you have a known vulnerability that you have to um, protect constantly. And if you protect it, you won't necessarily be able to tell if it's a government hacker or a um, malicious or otherwise malicious hacker who has who's not doing it for legitimate reasons and I'm saying legitimate in air quotes right there for those not watching the video um, what else is there yeah the other piece that really really got my goat Modifying data. Let me get this straight. If the whole purpose of this is to be able to collect evidence for a situation, if you modify data, you are modifying evidence. Having a bill like this would realistically make it so that you cannot, you cannot ethically admit evidence that could possibly be modified or altered into a trial or into an investigation. Because if something has that, there's, there's a phrase for that. It's called evidence tampering. And in most jurisdictions, it's a crime. There's a reason for that, because evidence is supposed to be evidence. It's not something that's oh you can mess around with it you can change what you're you can do what you're saying in court no problem or in any other investigation but you cannot but evidence is evidence is something that is supposed to say this is why i'm saying this this is a fact if you modify that fact it is no longer a fact it is a partially false fact or a completely false fact. And if you can access an account and say, oh, this person sent an email, 
well, you have the ability to access the account. So did they send the email or did you send the email to make it look like they sent the email? So realistically speaking, the bill here, not only is it a massive ethical problem, but I don't think whoever introduced this bill hasn't quite figured out that doing this invalidate, reasonably invalidates evidence. Because if there's the possibility that it got tampered with, you can't accept it as being evidence. There's a reason why it's a crime, and that is simply because if you mess with evidence, that, could, that can make or break someone. So, I'm sorry, but so, sometimes there are things that come up that are massive problems with both privacy and justice, and this is one of them. Last but not least on the docket today is the conclusion to the Apple versus Epic trial, or at least for now, I should say. So in the 185-page ruling by the court, it's basically a no-win situation for everyone, which many of us sort of called, and you'd have to listen, you'd have to listen back to previous episodes to try to go and figure out exactly what I said, but a lot of us had a feeling that the Epic versus Apple trial, when I mentioned the facts, the judge and really found the facts and created rulings based on them. And with those rulings, basically nobody wins. So first and foremost, as I think I've previously mentioned, the judge found Epic to have violated its contract. And the part I mentioned would have been the Epic violating its contract piece. By rule, if, um, if you enter in a contract, maybe you don't agree with it, but if you break the contract, you're, you're subject to whatever the punishments are in it. And what ended up happening uh, ended up being that Epic got their account or developer account blocked from the App Store. And now, as a result of the trial, Epic has to pay damages to Apple for breaching that contract, which is kind of interesting. Now, the judge found that the App Store itself isn't really monopolistic and pointing out fully that the success is legal, which of course Apple was thrilled to hear and used, I believe, in a press release. But there's a catch. According, the judge found that under California law, which of course Apple is subject to, if you ever read the terms and conditions, half of the Half of it says that everything will happen in the state of California. 
and things are subject to California law. Well, under one of those California laws, the judge found the, that forcing in-app purchases is anti-competitive. Oops. And more specifically, and I'm going to read a quote here. According to the ruling, Apple Incorporated and its officers, agents, servants, employees, and any person in active concert or participation with them, known as Apple, are hereby permanently restrained and enjoined from prohibiting developers from I, including in their apps and their metadata buttons, external links or other calls to action that direct customers to purchasing mechanisms in addition to in-app purchasing, and II or two, uh, communicating with customers through points of contact obtained voluntarily from customers through account registration within the app. Now, that sounds like a whole bunch of legal jargon, and realistically speaking, it is. So here's the English version, and when I say English version, I'm, or English version, I mean translating that legal piece into something that the everyday non-legal-oriented person can really understand. It's basically saying that if a developer wants to place a link or a button in their app to be able to utilize a third-party um, payment processor that isn't the in-app purchases that are subject to Apple's commission fee, they can. And that whole legal wording is literally straight from Apple's terms and conditions. Which is basically, um, if you recall, it, there's a piece at the bottom that says um, severance, it talks about severance of any portion of the terms that say that the rest of it remains in full effect and only the section that had a problem is, is taken out. Well, this is a very specific, we're taking this section and making it invalid. And it's a really sort of tricky position to be in. Because Apple and developers might have different stances on what that really entails. And Apple could say something is a button by appearance and for a common example might be if you go to, if you have the Amazon app, when you hit that button that says proceed to checkout, that brings you to, that's an, a button that brings you to a payment mechanism. And of course, the payment mechanism is um, Amazon using their stored um, credit card information to complete the purchase. So they're not, you're not making an app in, eh, an in-app purchase. The Now, how that pertains to the terms I'm not going to go into right now because that's a whole other long conversation, but Apple might call something a button based on how it looks, and a developer might call something a button by how it works, which we'll have to see how that pans out. But the court made it very clear that how Apple handles this will be monitored. 
and if Apple decides to try and continue this by some strange workaround and the court catches wind of it, let's just say the court is not going to be happy. And they've made it quite clear that they'll be keeping an eye on things. In conclusion, I hope that you enjoyed this episode and I'm going to point out that this episode will be available on the 13th of September and literally the next day Apple will be having an event. So the next episode will end up being all of the things that Apple announces at the event, which we'll have to see may or may, or may not be its own episode, but usually I find it best to do that for these sort of things because otherwise you just get a really long episode and doesn't do a heck of a lot of good. I do hope that if you enjoy this episode that you'll subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. And also, if you go to anchor.fm slash charlesweeklyparty, you can listen to all episodes as well as finding links to your uh, favorite podcasting platforms. And you can also interact with voice messages there to let us know what you think. Also, feel free to support the podcast. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, please leave a review. And as per usual, if you want to see the action or lack thereof, you can always do so on YouTube. So, uh, once again, there will be a separate bonus episode with only the content from the reflecting pools. That'll do it for this episode. So see you next week. Take care and roll the outro.